Hello everyone, this is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to a special five-part podcast series sponsored jointly by Conversant and StoneTurn entitled The 2020 Update to the Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs Impact on Compliance Programs, a conversation with Conversant and StoneTurn. In this five-part series, we consider conducting investigations and ensuring consistent outcomes, internal reporting, establishing quantifiable metrics to measure and monitor the effectiveness of your compliance program, corporate culture, and evaluation of compliance programs. And now a word about our two sponsors. With the recent update to the Department of Justice Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs, it's time to reassess your compliance program. Click the link in this episode's liner notes for Conversant's interactive self-assessment and find out exactly how you stack up against the 2020 update. When you complete the assessment, you'll have a complete scorecard showing exactly where you can improve in the eyes of the Department of Justice. All from Conversant, all at no charge. Stone Turn. Since 2004, council corporations and government agencies have turned to global advisory firm Stone Turn when facing their greatest challenges. Make Stone Turn the first place you turn for advice on regulatory, risk and compliance issues, investigations, and business disputes. Hello, everyone. Tom Fox back for another episode. And today I'm joined by Stephen Martin, partner at Stone Turn, and we're going to consider evaluating compliance programs in light of the 2020 update to the evaluation of corporate compliance programs. Stephen, first of all, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Tom. Uh, Always great to be on your podcast. I always enjoy it. Stephen, I don't know if the Department of Justice is catching up to you. Uh, They are evolving on their thinking. But uh, one of the clear themes I have heard you say for 10 years plus is uh, a compliance program needs to evolve and it needs to be dynamic. And it seems to me that one of the themes from the 2020 updates was around that on risk assessments, that risks need to be reviewed not on a biennial basis, not on an annual basis, but on an ongoing basis so that improvements can be made on an ongoing basis. Do you find that to be a fair assessment of what the government has said to us? Yeah, I think that's absolutely what the government's been talking about more recently, which is, you know, you have to continue to evaluate your compliance program in light of the risk that your company faces. And when they talk about risk, it's, you know, government enforcement actions, industry regulations, industry enforcement uh, activity, as well as specific risk to your company. Um, And, you know, what the Justice Department now is talking about is your program should be constantly evolving. So it used to be that you could conduct you know, risk assessment every couple of years, or you make tweaks to your program, you know, now what they're suggesting is you should always be evaluating your risk, and you should be evolving the program on an ongoing basis, which, you know, I will tell you, most companies are are not good at doing. Um, You know, I often talk about, you know, the six elements of corporate compliance program in terms of making it effective and meeting the government expectations. And the key one is around risk assessment. Um, companies conduct risk assessments, but often they're not either very good at doing it or really understand their risk or their risk profiles are really static. Um, and the second thing is really around ongoing monitoring and enhancement of your program. Those are the two areas that companies struggle with. And I think the Justice Department has now caught up to that and understands it and is pushing companies to recognize that those are the two components of a program you know, where they might not be as effective as, as the government would expect them to be. 
The government also talked about real-time data uh, in terms of monitoring and having access to real-time transactions. Is that something that uh, is resonating when you talk to clients or is that really cutting edge bad, best practice right now in your opinion? Well, I think it depends on how in the company, but I would say it's certainly cutting edge. I mean, there are some industry leaders out there, you know, from the compliance side that really have real-time monitoring, um, have have programs that they put in place to do that either uh, internally or with external partners. Um, we at Stone Turn are, are starting to to talk to clients much more about what does this mean to have, you know, real-time data, dashboards, um, analytics that you can use, um, and then AI type of technology so that you can be, you know, not reactive in your program, not just proactive, but actually predictive and understand, you know, where the risks are, what the trends are looking like, how you can use that data and information um, to be ahead of the curve in understanding where the potential issues might be for your company, which for compliance is gonna be a huge step forward because instead of being just a cost center or being reactive, you know, now you're gonna be instrumental in you know, helping the company reduce its risk profile, maximize its profitability, and you know, work on behalf of all shareholders you know, to really bring that business forward to where it should be you know, by using real-time analytics. Uh, most companies are not doing it, but it's certainly where things are headed, um, both from the government's perspective as well as um, you know, what you should be doing in your compliance program just to be effective. One of the still remaining key risk areas in any compliance program is in third parties. Uh, the government has beaten into our heads, rightly so, that due diligence must be performed on a regular basis. But in the 2020 update, they talked more about third-party risk management what do you do after the contract is signed? How do you advise clients when it comes to actively monitoring your third parties, both on the sales side, but also on the supply chain side? Well, look, as you know, and you talk about this a lot, is you know the, the impact that third parties can have on your company, right? So you know, I don't know what the numbers are right now, but roughly 80% of the FCPA cases involve third parties doing something improperly, either at the direction of the company or on behalf of the company. And you know you're responsible for those third parties, and so not only do you have to you know have appropriate contracts in place and do initial due diligence, and that's what most companies you know are doing. Although I'll tell you, I still see a number of companies out there that don't really have a third party program, um, you know, or they think they can kind of have a paper program, which is conduct some base diligence and screening, put a contract in place, maybe have some audit rights that they never use. Um, but they don't monitor their third parties. Um, half the time, they don't even go back and conduct, you know, due diligence after the fact, um, which can lead to uncovering, you know, changes in ownership, where payments are going, all kinds of issues that you would that would flag um, potential FCPA violations. But then, really monitoring what are those third parties doing? So, do they have a compliance program? How how have they implemented it? What are they doing with their employees? You know, are they meeting your expectations and your code and the FCPA laws and the appropriate um, anti-corruption laws in the various countries in which they're operating. And, you know, a lot of companies before had just sort of put into place the base elements and then never had monitored. You know, now I think the best companies in the world that are doing this, that are really protecting their stakeholders and shareholders have the ongoing monitoring. And what that means is you've got to go in and do audits and you've got to follow up on due diligence and you've got to check ownership and you've got to go do training. Um, and you really have to be then monitoring you know, whether it's in some kind of dashboard or ongoing reviews, 
um, especially high risk and ranking your third parties and going through them on an ongoing basis. I often tell my clients that, you know, you should be conducting um, reviews of all your third parties over a two to four year period, depending on their risk profiles and following up on that. And that's now the government expectation. And so companies are going to have to be moving to enhance those third party programs because many of them are not doing it. And the risk is just too, you know, is too high, not only from an enforcement standpoint, but also from a reputational standpoint, because you get into things around, you know, CSR related activities where third parties are not meeting, you know, what you would hope from a human rights standpoint or from an environmental standpoint or others. And so to me, it's not just FCPA and anti-corruption at the end of the day, but it's also, you know, who's going to impact you financially and who's going to impact you reputationally, which can be worse than even enforcement actions. Stephen, in the first half of the last decade, we saw a large amount of discussion about uh, the authority a CCO should have. Could they go to the board directly? Should they report to the general counsel? Now the Department of Justice has really moved forward uh, looking at not simply the CCO and their authority, not simply autonomy, but actually the resources, headcount, dollar spend available on a compliance program, but also compliance professional development. Uh, what do you see or what did you see from the 2020 update uh, along these lines? Well, I think, look, it makes it clear from a couple standpoints. One is um, the CCO should have much more direct involvement with um, the board of directors and at a senior management level, right? And that's one where, you know, sometimes they will arguably report to the CEO or have access to uh, the audit chair, but don't really have involvement. And, and that, you know, is a critical one and really has to change. The second one is having some independence. And, you know, the question is, do you report directly to the CEO? Do you report through the general counsel? To me, I've always talked to my clients, you know, it depends on who the general counsel is, or it depends on who the, um, the, C the CEO is, you know, and, and who do you want to report to? Because to me, it's really who can you work with? Who's going to give you the appropriate resources? Um, and support for the program. Um, you know, there you also need to talk about, you know, what are the resources? You know, do you have the appropriate amount of people that are in the program? Do you have access to third parties that you're gonna need that will be instrumental for you? And how do you, how do you value that um, from a budget standpoint? Um, and, you know, to me, that's, a, that's an interesting one because, you know, you and I've talked about this before where, um, it's always a cost center for compliance and rarely, you know, do companies really value the work that compliance has done versus the budget that's in place. And the justice department simply doesn't care about that. Right. Because the easiest thing for a prosecutor to ask you is, you know, you're coming in saying, well, I did the best I could with the resources that I was, that I was given. And, you know, let's say you're a multi-billion dollar company. The first, the first question I would have asked you as a former federal prosecutor is, okay, how much did your company spend on yellow post-it notes, right? How much did you spend on office supplies? Because it's going to be way more than you spend on the overall compliance program. And so it's indefensible at that point. And so what you really need to do is have reviews done of the governance and the structure and the budget and make sure that, that you think that that meets the goals um, and the risk profile of the company to operate the compliance program and would meet the government expectations. In the area of mergers and acquisitions, the 2020 evaluation focused more on the pre-acquisition due diligence, but they coupled that with, uh, if you look to the FCPA resource guide, second edition, which was released in July, the um, FCPA corporate enforcement policy incorporates 
uh, an M&A component that if a company does pre-acquisition due diligence, and then of course the few steps after closing of integration, a forensic uh, analysis of the acquired company and training, they can get a declination. But how do you advise a company to perform pre-acquisition due diligence? Well, Tom, I mean, this is always a very tricky area because when you're going through, you know, a deal and consideration, there's there's a lot of moving parts, right? You know, are you in an auction? Are you competing against other potential bidders? Um, how much diligence um, do you want to do or are you going to be permitted to do, um, you know, pre, pre-deal, meaning, you know, pre-execution of the, the contract or the deal agreement? Um, and, and so there are three tiers. One is, what diligence can you do pre-signing? Um, what diligence can you do post-signing, pre-close? And then what can you do post-close? Obviously, you have the most control post-close. And there, you know, it's very clear, and I tell my clients that within a reasonable time, which I always define as 12 months and 18 months at the outside, you've got to go in and, you know, do a full risk assessment, um, look at all the third parties and understand the risk profile of the new entity you've acquired and then do a full compliance program integration. So that that's the easy one. I mean, obviously, it's a lot of work, but that's the easy one to understand. Pre-signing, especially in an auction or very competitive process, you're going to be really limited in the diligence you can do. And so what you want to do there is find out what the key risks are for the company and try to get some information often that's going to be provided either orally or, or in answers to some questions that will be done you know, either by the investment bankers or directly with the company. And so there you're going to be targeting things like interactions with government officials, third parties, high-risk countries, um, regulatory activity, government investigations, things that, you're, that would be immediate deal breakers potentially or, or, or very big red flags because you're going to be limited in what you can get. And then what you want to do, um, and I tell my clients, is really on the post-signing pre-close time period, and everybody on the business side, on both sides, including the investment bankers, are always pushing to close the deal. So they want to try and limit the diligence still at that point. But it's to really think about, um, you know, digging in in an appropriate manner, given a very short time frame on what you've identified as key concerns or risk. Again, going back to, you know, key litigation, government investigations, potential third parties, high risk any of the things that would be significant liabilities for the company if you were to close that transaction. Um, you know, and look, you do have, you know, justice has made it really clear in, in the resource guide and the guidance to talk about that we want companies, we want good companies to sometimes buy bad companies and improve them, right? And so that's kind of the message that's out there from DOJ. And so you do get, you know, some protection from successor liability if you come in immediately post-close and deal with any of the issues. So I've had a number of my clients that I've worked with where in, in this, you know, pre-close diligence process, they have uncovered potential bribery, you know, uh, other types of fraud, illegal activity. And you've either moved to handle that and address it quickly post-close, or at certain times they've gone to the Justice Department to, you know, to disclose that um, during the sale, which is very difficult because obviously a selling entity never wants to do that um, unless they were already planning to move forward, or, and they don't want to hurt the, the value of their company if you didn't end up closing. So that's a very delicate time. Um, but sometimes you can do it on a no names basis. Sometimes you can go directly with the company, uh, but often you'll go, you know, kind of after closing. Now the kicker is, and some companies that makes them nervous, is to have successor liability 
you know, applied to um, pre-closed activities by the acquired entity is you have to both remediate them and then you have to disclose it to the Justice Department um, or other relevant organizations. And so, you know, that always makes people nervous, but there are ways to protect it. There's a lot of things that you can do in the diligence, but, you know, it's deal specific, uh, but you want to be focused, you know, pre-close on really critical bet the company, um, you know, government enforcement or reputational type issues. Stephen, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time, but I was wondering if listeners wanted more information on Stone Turn or its partnership with Conversant. Where could they go? Sure, they can uh, contact me, which is um, smartin at stoneturn.com. I'm always happy to talk to folks. Um, you know, as you mentioned, we do we have a great partnership with Conversant, where we're their advisory services partner, and we use their technology, um, which is great in terms of being able to help companies holistically manage their compliance programs. So some of the things that we were talking about, you know, data analytics, the information and disclosures, and all the things that a government, uh, the government expects, uh, it, it's nice because you can really put that through the Conversant system and you use that to measure the effectiveness of your program and defend it if there are government issues. And so, you know, it's a great partnership where we can come in and use our expertise and in-house compliance experience, as well as being former federal prosecutors to assist in building out and enhancing the compliance program and then overlaying uh, Conversant's technology to really manage it on a day-to-day basis to meet, you know, what's in the 2020 guidance and what we've been talking about here. Stephen, uh, thanks again. I look forward to continuing the conversation. Oh, it's great as always, Tom. Enjoyed it. Thank you for having me on. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this episode in the Stone Turn and Conversant podcast series on 2020 update to the evaluation of corporate compliance programs impact on compliance programs. I hope you'll join us again for another episode. Please check out the show notes where you can find information on Conversant's self-assessment based on the 2020 updates. Also, Conversant's Converge 20 is now open for registration, and I would urge you to take a look at the agenda. It's going to be a fabulous 10. This episode of the Conversant Stone Turn podcast series has been a special presentation of the Compliance Podcast Network.